So I had opportunity last summer to join together. We had some combined services. And in that summer, what we had uh, agreed upon was to do favorite texts. And at that point, I picked my favorite text of the Old Testament, was, which is from Luke 8. And it's a story of bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter. And it was actually the first sermon I ever preached on. I don't know if that's what makes it one of my favorite texts or uh, just that I, I think there's so much beauty in that sermon. But I'm not going to preach that sermon this year. You can go back on YouTube and watch it from last year. This year, I thought, what's my favorite text from, the, should I preach on my favorite text from the Old Testament? And when I told my wife about this idea, she said no. But I kept praying about it and thinking about it, and I thought, you know what, I really think this is actually what God wants me to speak on. And, and now, to help you understand why my wife might have said no to preaching on this text, is that it, it feels a little inappropriate really in some ways, and in a moment you will understand why. And, and this text is my favorite text, not because of the content of the story, but because of what it shows us of God, who is behind this story, and is indeed behind every story. And the title of this message is called The Worst Eight Words in the Bible. And I believe in a moment as you hear them and as we see them together that you might agree as well as we are going to be looking at indeed the worst eight words in the Bible. That means that this, today's message and this story takes us to those places in the Bible that connects with us when we're hurting, when we're in a place of brokenness and indeed when we're maybe even in a place of desperation. And you may, this morning, not be feeling like that. You may be having a pretty good summer and things have been going pretty well. And so this sermon isn't on your agenda today, but I want you to take this message and I want you to put it in your back pocket because there will be a day, and I don't know if it will be in the near future or if it may be years, when you will need to be reminded about the truth of God's goodness and grace. The rest of you are not waiting for tough days to come. You are hearing this and you're thinking, I don't know how I'm gonna make it through this next week. And God has a message of encouragement for you this morning. Now, many of you have probably already read this story in the past or heard parts of it. And you may have even read over these words. In fact, I did a little test this week. I uh, saw Martin Spoolstra, the pastor of Discovery, and, and I told him what I was preaching on. When I told him these words, he's like, what? That's what you're preaching on? And he's like, it, it, it vaguely rings a bell, but the way I said it and the way it comes out is just striking. Now, before I get to those words, I'll, I'll help set up the context for you. There's a city called Samaria, and in Samaria, it has, the city has been laid siege. And so the Aramean army has surrounded the city, and they've camped outside of the city, and this siege has been happening for a long time. And what would happen in warfare those days is that when an enemy would approach all the people from the fields, they would go into the city, and there they would hope that they had enough storehouses and resources to outlast the siege. Because within the walls of the city, you were safe. But if you went outside of those, you would, of course, be in grave danger. 
And so the city of Samaria is under siege, and the siege has lasted quite a while, and the food supplies have really dwindled down. And people were desperate, utterly desperate, more desperate than many of us, not all of us, but more desperate than most of us have ever had to experience or think about. And so we come to these words at Second Kings. Now, I'm going to take a drink before I read them. Are you ready to hear the worst eight words in the Bible? Are you sure? Okay. Second Kings 6, verse 29. So we cooked my son and ate him. How many of you knew those words were in the Bible? Maybe 10 of you. So we cooked my son and ate him. Now, ever since I I read this line and thought about this text years ago, I have asked myself, are there any worst words in the Bible? And you could even expand that. You could think, well, are there, is there any worse situation that any of us could possibly imagine being in? I have not. And if you can, I invite you to come and share it with me afterwards. But I have not, in the years, many years since I encountered this text, been able to come up with something that is more horrible, something that would be more unimaginable than this. Now, our first response when we read this, and we're going to look at the broader story in a moment, is is we want to judge. We think, who could ever, ever do such a thing? And I want to invite you at this moment to resist that urge. Because none of you have been captive in a besieged city for months on end and have experienced the hunger that this individual had experienced. And so I want to lay aside our impulse to judge. And and I want us to instead have a response that should be of compassion and of love and an understanding. One that says, what kind of reality would bring someone to this kind of desperate situation? Now, the second thing I want us to understand is that being in a tough situation does not mean that God has abandoned us. I am sure that for those people that were in that desperate situation in the story that we're looking at, they would have felt that God had completely abandoned them. But God is in control. And he is allowing things to happen. And to be clear on our theology is that God hates disease, death, brokenness, Desperation, divorce, sickness, poverty, hunger, none of these things were part of God's created order. And one day will come when they will be abolished. So God is not, you know, causing these things to happen. And yet, these things are a fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave his people. 
And that fulfillment takes place in Deuteronomy 28. And I'm just going to read that to you. In verse 15, God says, listen, my people, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will bring a nation from far away, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land till you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, or olive oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs or flocks. They will lay siege to the cities and throughout your land, and the high fortified walls in which you trust will fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. Because of the suffering your enemy will afflict on you during the siege, listen to this, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord has given you. And in verse 56, it goes on in even more specific, it says, the most Gentile and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her feet, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter, the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears. For in her dire need, she intends to eat them secretly because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of your city. I can't imagine going through that experience myself. And I can in no way ever imagine my wife or any mother having to go through that situation. And, and so in the reality of this story, the lady who shares these words calls down to the king and says, King, help me. And the king responds, says, how can I help you? If the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? And then she shares this story that her and the woman, uh, her neighbor, made an agreement that they would cook their son one day and eat it, and the next day they would cook the other person's son. The Bible doesn't tell us what the condition of these children were, whether they were already passed or not, but again, this is a horrible story and a horrible situation. And, and how we respond to it takes place, and we can see, through three different characters. The first is through the response of the king, the second through the messenger, and then finally we're going to meet some lepers and see how they respond. So the city's been laid siege, food is impossible, the lady calls out, and now the king heard the woman's words. Verse 30, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. He said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to his elders, don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So the king, as we started out and said, we recognize that God allows things to happen, but God will allow even the worst 
things in our lives to be used, again, his word promises, for our good and his glory. And I know when you're in those situations, for those of you who are going through those losses and in those experiences, it's almost impossible to imagine. And it's as impossible as Elisha's words are going to be heard and understood and believed by the people of Samaria in just a moment. But the king says, this has been caused by the Lord. Now, when people are in a time of great trial, I find there's a few different ways they can respond. And most of them are fairly negative. A lot of people think it's just random. Well, that's just, you know, my bad luck. That's what happened. That's, that's, that's what I'm experiencing. That's what I'm going through. A lot of people will think or get to a point of thinking, you know what? I must be despised. I must have bad karma, bad luck. Maybe God despises me. Or another option that people do is, is, is they look around and they say, I'm in these terrible situations, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at other people and I'm going to point the finger and I'm going to blame them. Maybe you can hear those and you can think back, you know what, in certain situations in my life, I've done all three of those at different times. And the king at this point, he's taking his finger and he's pointing it at Elisha and he's saying, Elisha, as the prophet of God, is responsible for this. He is to blame. The second thing that we notice is that the, 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 the king is out of patience. He's, why should I wait any longer? Why should I go along believing what I've been believing for any longer? And that's one of the trials and one of the temptations of deep suffering, isn't it? When we experience those rock-bottom places, there's some of us, and we get to the point where we say, you know, we have what we call a utilitarian view of religion, right? I've been following God. I've been doing the things God wants me to do. I've been trying to trust Him. I've been going to church. I've been singing the songs. I've been listening to the preacher, and it's not working. And we give up. We think, you know what? Forget it. I'll stay home. Now, Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sayah of flyness flour will sell for a shekel and two sayahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. So the first response is the king who's blaming and out of patience. The second response is that of the messenger. And the messenger's response is really quite simple. He does not believe. Look, even if God were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? There's no way that this could possibly happen. And when we get into those difficult places or when those difficult places come to us, that's one of the things that we start saying, isn't it? I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't think I can. I can't see my way out of this. This hole and this darkness is so deep and so hard. I can't see my way out of it. So the bottom line for the messenger is he does not believe or trust in the word of God. And the judgment is simple. 
when we don't trust or believe in the word of God, then we're left to destruction. Elisha says, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. Which, which raises the question, then, what kind of faith does God require? Well, one, God wants us to believe his promises, to continue to believe in his promises, even when it seems impossible. That's what I love about this story is because it shows the depths of desperation and the, the, the level of impossibility, unimaginable, about how this could change. And yet, our God is so amazing and so powerful that in a moment it does change. The reality completely shifts because God does one simple thing. I love that about a good book or a good movie. You know, when you're into something and you're like, how is this situation ever going to be resolved? And then in a moment, in a masterful sweep, the complete context changes. So, the lepers. There's these four guys. They have leprosy. They're at the entrance of the city gate and they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. And if they kill us, then we die. So at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Oh no, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Isn't that amazing? Just pause there a moment. God does one thing. He causes a whole army to hear the sound of another army attacking them. That's it. And that sound is enough to strike fear into the heart of that army and all of those soldiers that they in an instant flee. That's the solution. That's what God does. Just, just a few verses early, the king and, and the messenger were saying, how would this even be possible? There's no way this could be possible. And God, in one simple step, changes the situation. Did you catch that? God, in one simple move, changes the desperation of a whole city. Then the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and they ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes, and they went off and they hid them. Then they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. If you're ever like imagining, closing your eyes and imagining, imagine this picture of these four lepers coming upon this huge tent, and they're going around, they're scavenging, they're like, look at all this stuff, this is so great, I'm gonna grab it and take it, and I'm gonna hide it over here. And it's like, oh, there's more stuff. And they're, this whole entire camp, and then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it till ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this to the royal palace. Now imagine, 
God's done this incredible thing. The army and the camp is empty. These four guys have discovered it. And imagine they've discovered this amazing news and they don't go back and share it. A whole city sitting there under siege, starving, starving, when there's an, a massive buffet just miles away in the camp. And so these lepers recognize, you know what? What we have is good news. And we cannot keep it to ourselves. We desire to share this great news. So the words, the point of this message are found just within two words, two key words. The first is this, comfort. Comfort. I don't know how terrible of a situation you are in. I don't know what reality it is that you're walking out. I know that even as I think about it, I know hearts break and tears flow because life sometimes is unbelievably hard. But here's the word of comfort. God can change your situation in a moment. The problem is that I don't know when that moment's going to come, and I don't know how long you'll have to wait for it, but God changes situations when we trust and when we wait upon him when we trust in his word. God's word is full of promises and he has never failed. So God delivers us. Hold on to that promise. The second is this, a commissioning. If you are like the lepers who have discovered that there is a place where there is freedom and joy, providence in abundance, then we have a, a responsibility, not only a responsibility, but the privilege to share the good news that God has given us. We get the opportunity to live out the blessings of experiencing God's plan for our life, of, of understanding how his truth leads us and guides us. And as we live that out, we experience more and more of his blessings. And I fear sometimes for us, it's so easy to think, you know what? You know, I'm, I'm chained in a camp. I, I'm, I'm in a city. I'm in a safe city. I don't know that I want to leave the familiarity of all that I have and all that God has given me. And, and God is promising us, there is freedom. There is joy. There is life. If you step out and trust me. Some of the words that God promises us. John 11, verse 25. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. The one who has the Son has life. John, 1 John 5, verse 12. No one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. John 10, verse 28. John 4, 6, verse 40, I will raise up believers on the last day. Romans 10, verse 13, anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are some of the promises that God has given. 
Now we look at our situation. And one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that often what's true physically also has a spiritual parallel. And the reality is, is that God knew each of us were in a city under siege. And the walls surrounding us and keeping us encaged were the walls of our own sinful heart. And God said, I'm going to find a way to deliver you. And it's not just going to be by sending a sound into the ears of an army, but it's going to be by sending my son to a cross where he is going to pay the penalty for your sin and give you the opportunity to be set free. And in doing that, not only is he going to pay your penalty, but he is going to give to you the opportunity to be filled with his righteousness, with his joy, with his peace, with his love, so that no matter what difficult circumstances you face, no matter how desperate you might become, you will know that the Lord is with you. He has not forsaken or abandoned you, and he will, even if it takes to the last day, he will set you free. And we will have new life and an eternity with him. That is the joy and the security of the Christian gospel. And that means sometimes God doesn't fix things the way we want him to fix things on this earth. But he promises us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where joy and peace and celebration will reign. One of the things I do in my sermon preparation is sometimes I like to go and play some music. And this morning I went up, I was at Rehoboth, went upstairs and I started playing the piano and this song that came to mind, Psalter Hymnal 436, this is my father's world. And I, I had to open up the Psalter Hymnal and I'm 49, so it's getting a little hard to read the words on the Psalter Hymnal without my reading glasses. But this is what I read. The beginning of verse two. This is my father's world. Oh, let us not forget that though the wrong, it used to say, when I was a kid, we say, is oft so strong. I actually like those words. Though the wrong is oft so strong. Now it says, though the wrong is great and strong, God is the ruler yet. Lord, we have all come into this place, into this day, from so many different directions, from so many different places, emotionally, mentally, physically. And Lord, what you have for us through your spirit is good news. It's the good news that though the wrong is off so strong, God, God is the ruler yet. And so it's no matter, Lord, what desperate experiences we are going through or what we will face in the future. Your love, your promise, your word, your strength, and your spirit 
will walk us through whatever it is. That's the love of the Father who died, sent his Son, who died, rose, and lives within us. And so, Lord, may we cling to that truth. May we gravitate towards who you are to understand more of who you are, to know your promises and to hold on to them for all we have. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray. Amen.